chances are if you're jumping into homesteading or been in homesteading for a little while, you've also heard of permaculture. But what is it? How do you get started in it? What's some basic ways, some fundamentals of permaculture that you can apply to the homestead and to start making your life more fulfilling and start making the homestead more productive? That's what we're diving in today with Scott Mann of the Permaculture Podcast. He's a renowned expert in the world of permaculture, and we have the privilege of getting him to guest on our podcast and really explain podcast down so that you can understand it just at the fundamental starting out kind of intro level and take it from there. So join us today as we talk with Scott Mann. Hey, friends. Welcome to The Schoolhouse Life, where we answer your pressing questions and share useful tools for creating your most fulfilling, self-sufficient family homestead. We go back to basics in all things family, faith, and farming, and we're eager to teach you what we've learned, everything from growing a garden to earning an income to living a less toxic and more nature-based lifestyle. We're thrilled you're here and hope you leave inspired to live your life as a schoolhouse too. Well, Drew, thank you so much for this invitation to join you on the Schoolhouse Life podcast. We've known each other here for a while. I got to come down to where you are in North Carolina, visit you and Lacey, spend some time with not only you and your family, but also your community. And so it's great to be in this media space and to be able to have these conversations with you as a creator myself with my own show, to be here as your guest today to share my specialty, permaculture, with your homesteading audience. Knowing what I do about your audience and the format, and so that I don't run overly long because I could sit here and talk with you about permaculture for hours and hours, I want to introduce this idea to your listeners by going over three different things today. And that's how we can begin to practice permaculture in about five minutes by asking ourselves four questions. From there, for folks who are on the land, I'd like to share the zone model of permaculture because that can really help us orient what we are going to be implementing, where we're living, and help us make some good decisions about where things should go so that they are functional for us where we live. And then finally, for anybody who wants to dig into this a bit deeper, to share the four books that I always recommend people start with when they begin reading about permaculture, because that gives a really good grounding in these ideas. It's applicable, it's easy, super inexpensive, and because I don't think that everybody needs to study permaculture formally or take a permaculture design course to meaningfully implement permaculture in their lives. I'm very excited about it. Uh, as you were just telling me beforehand, you haven't been on that many podcasts, and I, I feel honored now to have you on here. And I know our guests are going to get a ton out of this. So thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom with us. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate being on the other side of the mic. Yeah. From, you know, presenting at conferences and doing some live streams and things as a teacher, because I, I have a permaculture teacher training certificate. I went to graduate school where I studied environmental education. So I love doing this. But I also love talking to people so much. And so for me over the years, my show has always been about interviewing others. And I've never really thought about talking on other folks' shows and sharing this, even though I'm always talking about it. So yeah, it's a great opportunity. Well, thank you so much. Oh, uh, yeah, I know. Well, and for people that don't know, I mean, just talking with Scott and the people that Scott has interviewed over the years, I mean, Scott, you have quite the portfolio of wisdom that you have interviewed. So like, yeah, it's it's pretty impressive and it's exciting. So thank you. Yeah. And as I'll share in the end, I can 
get into a bit more of those details of just how much of that information is out there for folks who'd like to explore this further by listening to my show. But that's not where why I'm here. This is about sharing some things with your listeners right now. And so for me, for a long time, permaculture was kind of almost esoteric or mystical. Like I really loved what I learned in the permaculture design course and from all my readings because I started studying this back in the late 1990s and it took me more than a decade before I finally like committed to it and went to a permaculture design course, which then the week after I graduated from that was when I started the permaculture podcast. Oh, wow. But yeah. even in taking that course and studying this material, getting to talk with some of the founders of permaculture, it was always this big picture. And through that, getting to understand how interconnected all of these different pieces of ecology and our culture and economics and all these different things filter together into our design and what we have to consider. And when you kind of drink from the fire hose by, you know, reading the work of David Holmgren or taking a permaculture design course, it can feel like you're never really ready to practice permaculture. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's also like a lot of the conversations about permaculture is about whether or not you're in the land and actually able to like grow your own food or homestead, which is, you know, not a conversation necessarily for your listeners, but for people who are practicing permaculture at large, it can be hard to hear how much of it is focused about being in the landscape when there's someone living in an apartment who gets, you know, maybe one window that get, gets good sun or a balcony yep. that they might put some pots in. And so it took me a long time in many conversations to realize that permaculture is really about designing our lives mm. and doing it in a way that is meaningful to the earth and ourselves and all of the life that we share this world with. And that had me go back and really examine what Bill Mollison wrote about in his designer's manual, also sometimes known as the big black book of permaculture, because it's this giant tome. Would um, you say, for those listening that don't know, would you say that Bill Mollison is the inventor of permaculture? The, the way that it's been explained to me is that the co-originators of permaculture as a term are Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. Okay. Really, as I follow it from getting to talk with David Holmgren himself and some other folks, David was actively in writing about some of these ideas because of the university that he went to and looking at things like the possibility of energy descent and not having access to fertilizers because of the way that the industrial system works. And so Bill was David's mentor during his time at university. And the two of them then worked on these ideas that became permaculture. It pulls from a lot of different traditional agricultural practices, indigenous practices, modern ideas about science and the environment, and kind of distill it into this design practice so that we can prepare for the future regardless of what happens. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And where it gets interesting for me as like a historian of permaculture and where I think some of the confusion about what permaculture is and isn't comes into the conversation is that after Bill and David published their first couple of books and David graduated from university, Bill continued to develop permaculture as an idea, wrote his book, which was published, I think, in 1988. But before that, had been touring the world teaching permaculture to people who were already landscape architects, garden designers, and people steeped in the landscape. Having talked to some folks who, who were in the United States and studied with Bill on like his first and second tour, originally the permaculture design course was like three weeks long and super intensive and oh, not what it oh. is now. Yeah. yeah. And it was hearing about that piece about that it was designed for people who are already doing this and already professionals was really interesting for me to hear because 
most of the folks who I've studied permaculture with or have met in permaculture settings are folks who come to it because of gardening, because of homesteading, because they want to live a better life, things like that. Yeah, because I mean, like I just saw somebody the other day in a group that had planted fruit trees. You know, and they had like large thing of fruit tree, like an orchard, but they had nothing at the bases of the fruit trees. And I was like, hey, have you considered gill? And they were like, what is that? You know, like, so like that level. And I was like, hey, like Google it, dive into it. Let me know what questions you have. But you could tell it had like blown their mind. They're like, whoa, you know, there's so much more I could do. But like, that's kind of the the level for a lot of people is just like, you know, they're not designers. They're not landscapers. They're just, you know, wanting to mimic nature work with nature rather than against it or haven't even considered that concept yet Mm -hmm. and that's one of my pieces as an educator is getting down to what do people really need to know and understand and like with what I want to share with you today it's about distilling some of this down so that folks can leave this short conversation with something that's actionable and as I work on this idea of permaculture for non-practitioners or permaculture for everyone else, (laughs) separating out the professional pieces of permaculture that you need to know if you want to be a full-time designer versus the pieces that people need to know if they just want to do this really well in their homestead or wherever they find themselves. Oh man, I'm excited. Uh Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot coming out, and I give thanks to people like David Holmgren or Rosemary Morrow for spending time with me as I moved into this place of running my own show for so long that I'm kind of like the permaculture librarian. There are a couple of folks yeah. who referred to me in that way. I like it. I, in this weird place that I sit of having spoken to more folks within the permaculture community than only a couple of other people who I know, let alone to have read so many of the books and other material just because of what publishers and authors have sent me over the years. Like, I kid you not, I've probably read somewhere between 750 and 1,000 books on permaculture, gardening, and ecology, and all these other things that fall under the umbrella of permaculture to get to this moment. Now you got me excited about the book list at the end. Because to take all that and put it into four books, man, <laughs> no, no spoilers. I'm holding out for you. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> to get there, though, there's a bit of a journey I want to take us on. Let's go. And that's with this confusion about what permaculture is and the difference between design and these other pieces. For me, permaculture kind of falls into a hierarchy that takes us from the prime directive to the ethics, to the principles. And then finally, our strategies and our techniques. Enumerate what the prime directive and ethics are here in a moment. But this kind of hierarchy, you will find the principles listed in Gaia's Garden by Toby Hemingway. He lists a series of principles for practicing permaculture in your landscape. David Holmgren's book, uh, Permaculture Principles and Pathways Beyond Sustainability, enumerates and expands on David Holmgren's 12 principles of permaculture with like these long chapters of like what it is and how it applies and how it works, which is interesting to get David's perspective because at least in the first printing of that book, and I have a copy of the revised edition, but have not worked my way through it. And I have a revised edition of that book, but haven't worked my way through it yet to look for all the differences. But like in David's original edition, he talks about using pesticides in landscape and herbicides and things like that, and that there's a role for that in permaculture, but that it is more narrow than we might find it, but that it is more narrow than we might find it in other discussions, like 
for me as a designer, I feel comfortable spraying for something like poison ivy because everybody except for myself and my family are extremely allergic to it. Yeah. And tearing it out is a nightmare. Yeah, it is. So like, <laughs> you know, if you're in a place where you have something like that, it's needing to make those good decisions. Yeah, that are that are right for you. But then from those principles, you get to strategies, which are very often more narrow cases of how to handle certain situations. A common one within permaculture is when we think about water, that if we want to utilize it in our landscape, that we need to spread it, slow it and sink it so that when we're looking at the water on a landscape, however, it arrives there, that the best way to get it in the land is to spread it across as large of an area as we can so that we can get it to infiltrate. Yeah. And uh, it makes me think of, uh, I always think of like permaculture, <laughs> permaculture, permies as like beavers, you know, like mm-hmm. we're, we're all out there. How many swales can we build? How many ponds can we build? You know, you see like Jeff Lawton's like Zaytuna mm-hmm. farm and he's like, wow, I need more ponds than he has, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And that's like for those of us who are here on the East Coast where there's free flowing water and there used to be beavers, get yourself a couple of beavers and they'll do the work for you. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I love those kinds of connections. And yeah, so like those strategies, getting that water out there, whether it is that pond or um, just spreading it across the landscape, getting it to slow down to get it time to infiltrate and sink into the land. Perfect strategy. What you mentioned about guilds, guilds are a strategy for companion planting within permaculture. I often think of guilds as intentional communities. Mm, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I use that because when I was studying ecology, we talked quite a bit about the different ways that natural systems organize and that one of those terms is communities. Mm. And so because intentional communities are something that we can think of as people, they're part of like our lexicon, yeah. that thinking of guilds as intentional communities is a way to consider that we are purposefully de- developing this relationship and interconnection in our landscape. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. And then it's like, as we consider that, that's what gets us to our techniques. And our techniques are things like the food force that you'll see around, using swales, hugel culture. Uh, herb spirals, a lot of those things that you will see and find in many of your permaculture books and other things are techniques that arise from applying the prime directive ethics, principles, and strategies. Mm, But very very often, I joke that swales are the... I often joke that swales are the darkness that haunt my soul because the number of questions (laughs) I get about them. (laughs) But that happens anytime there's something popular within the permaculture conversation. Sure. But I, I, I understand their utility, but if we're going to install swales, it is going back and looking at, do we really need one? Right. How would it be useful? How would it be effective? But in a world where we're always trying to get things done, I know that it can be hard to take the time to go back and reflect on these things. And we see something and we love it and we want it. Right. <laughs> which is what gets me to circle back to when it comes to practicing permaculture, my four questions are steeped in the prime directive and the ethics of permaculture. The prime directive is that we take responsibility for our own lives and that of our descendants. But that's the place that we start, you know, 
start examining where we are, what we can do to be better people for ourselves and the people who we know and love and care for, and then, you know, outward from there into our community. That the And from there, once we can take that step and are working on those actions to consider the ethics of permaculture, which now are commonly referred to as earth care, people care, and fair share. Originally, it was about care of earth and care of people and limiting population and creating a surplus. But as permaculture has developed, the third ethic has moved a bit because there are communities that, because of their religious tenets, you know, go forth and, you know, be fruitful and multiply is something that some folks take to heart. And so that prime directive though we understand the impacts of a, that a large population might have, that we're finding that there are, is a different carrying capacity and limits and things from the research and where we're at and how we can utilize efficiencies and things. So we move to fair share. I like it. Yeah. And so then that is what guides me to the four questions. So if we're going to practice permaculture, to ask ourselves, does this take responsibility for my own life and future generations? Mm. Does this care for earth and the other than human life? Does this care for people? And does this create a surplus that I can return to the world? Mm. Now, I do weight those questions that like you should start at the top and work your way through them. And that things like creating a surplus is a little less important than if what you're doing is caring for people compared to caring for earth and the other than human life versus taking responsibility because taking responsibility is where all this starts. Saying that, however, I do feel that if you can answer yes to all of these questions, you are definitely practicing permaculture. No question about it. Even if what you're doing doesn't look like a food forest, you've never dug a swale and you're not interested in an herb spiral, it is still permaculture because those techniques by themselves aren't permaculture. It's just what we arrive at. Even then, if you can answer even yes, or from there, even if you can answer yes to two or three of these questions, you are well on your way to practicing permaculture. Now, if you can only answer yes to one of these or none, then, you know, go back to what it is you're doing and see if there are ways that it can be something that takes responsibility for yourself and future generations. You know, maybe that means that you are going to look for fruit trees that will produce for 30, 40, or 50 years that is a standard-sized tree as opposed to a dwarf that you might need to replace in 15 or 20 mm. because of that long-term vision. Similarly, you know, that, if it... Oh. That's an interesting one because I, I have planted some nut trees that I probably will never in my lifetime see the nuts from, you know, mm-hmm. but in one of my daughters, we were like working on the guild around it and... I, she was like, well, why do you have this if you won't get the nuts? I was like, this is for you and for your children and your children's children. You know, like it's that's a it's an interesting concept. But I like to I like the idea of what you're saying, though, of thinking about it even outside of our family, like can future generations of other people participate mm-hmm. in that food also? Yeah, and that's where I think that permaculture creates a stewardship model in all of our actions. Yeah, that is really helpful. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's also because permaculture is non-judgmental in many regards if you're, as I say, with spraying. Spraying is something that works for me when it comes to something like poison ivy. Right. But, I'm not li- but I'm not likely to use an herbicide in any other situation, nor would I use a pesticide or anything else like that. But that's my personal decision. If you need to grow food for your family and that is an imperative, 
and something attacks your tomatoes one year and you need to use a pesticide so that you have a meaningful crop to harvest, then that's a conversation you can have with yourself and your family and those people around you to decide if that is a good choice. And then in doing so, well, how can I select something that does the least damage and is most beneficial out of this relationship so that we can find the most good out of what we are doing for within the scope of those four questions? Yeah, that, that's cool. It, it reminds me a lot of like a, the holistic context check, you know, like in holistic management, very, very similar in some ways. But yeah. 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 And that's where it's ask yourself those questions, answer them to the best of your ability. And the more you do so, the more you'll find that you are making decisions that allow you to say yes to those questions without even thinking about it. And it's just a matter of practicing and starting with being able to answer yes to two of them and go from there. And it's something that one of my colleagues within the permaculture community, and it's something that one of my colleagues in the permaculture community, Taj Shakluna, the permapixie shared with me, was this reminder, which she thinks of almost as a fourth epic, of transition. For many of us, we didn't grow up with these ideas. Mm. So it's new to us. It's going to take time to understand them. We're in a world that every year changes more rapidly than the last. And so we're always working on finding what is best for us. And so give yourself the space and have grace for your practices while you work through this, because it's impossible to make a decision that is great for everyone all the time. Right. And it is really doing the best we can. Yeah. I like the idea too of it. Like as homesteaders, a lot of times you're limited on time and you need to get things done quick and you make decisions sometimes without thinking. And we always kind of preach this to our like coaching clients is more of the holistic context check, but you could add the, I would, I'm going to add these questions. And also it's like, it's a way to pause before you do it. You know, like you drive up like with the massive machinery and like, hold on, let's think about this real quick and make sure that this is going to work before we just put in another swale. (laughs) Right. And that's where, if your listeners are interested, I'd love to come back and talk sometime about needs and yields analysis within a permaculture context. Yeah. Because I find that that answers a lot of the questions on where should we be focusing our time and what should we be doing and is really helpful. And it also fits in that the more that I've learned about permaculture design once you're actively designing and working on this and you're integrating this other ideas that we won't be able to get to in our conversation today, that your design will answer almost all of your questions. And if for some reason the design doesn't and you find a hole, then it's a matter of going back to your design and finding out what is missing from the design that, could, that would answer that question. And then once you do that, you don't have a lot of questions and you can answer all of these things just from that work. I like it. Yeah. So, and that's one, and that's one of the models that I really appreciate. And one of the models that I really appreciate within permaculture when it comes to design is the zone model. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like originally this was numbered from one to five and started kind of like from a front door garden out to like where you might grow your perennials to where you might have some livestock to the semi-wild that may or may not be in your landscape to true wilderness, which regretfully there's very little of left in the world. Over time, this has also come to include zone zero and zone zero zero, where zone zero zero is a representation of yourself. Oh, wow. I haven't heard of that one. (laughs) Yeah. I, I came to this early in my permaculture career when it was being dismissed pretty heavily. 
but the more that permaculture integrates different ideas than just our landscape practices, it's recognizing that there is a piece of permaculture that occurs kind of like from inside ourselves outward into the world. Interesting. Yeah. And so the, the self gets added because when we start doing needs and yields analysis, we need to think of ourselves and include ourselves in that design. And so it's then it becomes things like, well, if I want to garden and I have mobility issues, how do I approach that? How do I include that in my design? Um, if, you know, for homesteaders, if you have limited time, well, then where do you want to spend that time? Because what is most productive for you and what are the most meaningful things that you can do? And then zero was added because of just how much time we spend in our homes. And because there are so many things that we can do inside of our homes that benefit from applying permaculture to them and thinking about it because we can reduce our energy needs, which then creates a surplus that puts more money in our pockets, you know? Even if it's not replacing our bulbs with LEDs or things like that, going through and preparing our home for winter and the energy we save reduces the demand on the energy system, the amount of fossil fuel that's burned to keep our home comfortable, and it's cheaper. So, yeah. Yeah. Or I, I was thinking, I was going with Zone Zero. I was going, um, you know, my mind's always in plants. <laughs> yeah. Plants and livestock. But I, I was listening to a, another podcast where the guy was actually growing like microgreens in his basement during the winter, you know, like mm-hmm. there's a, a whole lot and you kind of hit on this before, but there's a whole lot of growing you can do in your house, you know, like before you get outside the door also. Yeah. And exactly. That turns it back for folks who are apartment dwellers yeah. or in have limited access to land or things like that, that they can still, there's a lot that they can do. Sure, yeah. Or like myself, I'm not on the land right now, living five miles from our nation's capital, <laughs> but I have a lot of knowledge and skills about pickling and canning and putting up food. Yeah. And so if I invite a bunch of people over, we buy a couple of bushels of something from a farmer or the farmer's market, or we invite a farmer in or someone we know who has a community garden space who grew too many zucchinis because we always do. We always grow too many zucchinis. For sure that we can come together then and use that home space to process that food. Yeah. Which goes back into that ethic of care, those ethics of caring for people and returning a surplus from a garden. Yeah. And it's, there's an article that comes to mind as we're speaking called the eight forms of capital from Ethan Rowland and Gregory Landway that I recommend people look up. And I think if you just look up eight forms of capital, you can find the article. It's at at Appleseed Permaculture. That may may not be correct, but I'll get you a link that you can put in the show notes for it. Because a lot of permaculture is also looking beyond the financial and these other pieces to see what we can add to the conversation and how we can create these conditions. And so, like I say, I may not be able to grow food, but I know how to can it. Right. Um, and there's that knowledge and things like that and are all part of practicing permaculture. And brings, goes back to the community and community dynamics, you know, like just because, like you said, just because you don't have land right now, when we started looking at the greater of humanity and as a community, then how do we feed each other and make sure each other are taken care of? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I also, where the zone model fits really well and I like a lot because we can, from a homesteader's perspective, we can look at it from a landscape approach Mm. so that the places closest to our home and the places that we frequent daily or every other day are that zone one and zone two, you know, our garden should ideally should be located right outside of our, of a door that 
so that we will pass it every day. You know, front door to car door is a very common zone one conversation about where to put a garden because if you commute to a job, you're going to pass it on the way to your car and can see, oh, when I get home, that's going to need water. This is going to be taken care of. That's getting eaten. When we get home, before we even go inside, we can grab a basket or a bucket from next to the door, go harvest what we need to, examine those pests, you know, pinch off any leaves that are diseased, water real quick, and then go about the rest of our day. Yeah, um, I, that's one I think I see the most of that what should be zone one gets put like someone someone moves into a 10 acre property and they put the garden over in the sunny field and, and plow or till a 30 by 50 square and that you know then they're hauling the hose out there and buckets and it seems like it's I, I think it's just traditional you know like there's a tradition behind that but as soon as you kind of say to people like hey what if you brought this to your front door and what if you don't like my new my new question is do you plan on harvesting your garden with machinery because if you're not you don't need a big square you know like like you said you can put it on both sides of the sidewalk and make it a little bit different yeah and that was something that i had to come to an understanding of how prolific we can be with these methods yeah that you know what i'm better off putting a slightly smaller slightly less productive garden near the door because I am likely to manage it more intensively. And as I become accustomed to that in three to five years, I'll be pulling more food out of that 400 square feet than I would the 1500 square feet that I plowed. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, there's A lot of what I've encountered over the years and read and researched is that a single acre of land can grow a complete diet for between four and 10 people. Wow. But doing so is actually only using a quarter of an acre to grow that food for the four to 10 people. The rest of that acreage is growing our fertility, supporting pollinators and these other things. But in order to do that, you need, you're looking at um, market gardening or French intensive garden styles. And when I hear those kinds of numbers, that makes growing a, a substantial amount of our food seem much more possible. Yeah. And then also, like, if we look at being what we can grow throughout the year, depending on when we live and, and borrowing from permaculture, again, stacking functions as a strategy, like interplanting, my favorite thing to grow was, gar- was garlic beneath Mm -hmm. the strawberries yeah because the strawberries provided me a ground cover throughout the year and the garlic did not disturb the root system of the strawberries Mm. and gave me a bunch of different harvests similar to thinking about how we produce a surplus i always grew day neutral or ever bearing strawberries because they where i was in pennsylvania they would start producing around now as we're recording this early may And then they would produce usually until about a week or two after our first hard frost in October. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, being able to harvest those strawberries for that length of time made a huge difference for my family, but it's also, we weren't jam makers or things like that. Right. Which, yeah, it goes back to considering that zone zero, zero and zero. (laughs) Right. Um, But I also use this model to think about our communities as well, that zone zero can start within our house and reflect the people who we live with. Zone one, then from there might be our friends and family. Zone two are the neighbors in our local community. 
zone three is, you know, expands out from there to like a state level, four is our country, five is the world. Just as with our landscape-based practices, we can think of that one is our garden, two is where we grow like our shrubs and small perennials, three is where we grow large trees or livestock that only might need visited once a week throughout the season to check on or, you know, twice a week. Zone four is a space that kind of buffers where we are from the rest of the world where we can plant tree breaks and wind breaks or maybe take down a fence so we can be a better neighbor. Zone five is that wilderness that we want to leave alone as much as possible. If we can, I encourage anybody to plant native plants where they live in order to support those rarer species that are in the land that we call home. Yeah. I like the the idea of growing a wilderness area. We have, (laughs) right now we have a seven acre wilderness area. I would like it to be smaller, but um, (laughs) Uh, the I think that every property should have something that's just left alone and wild, you know, mm-hmm. it's an interesting. Yeah, and depending on where we are, that may mean that we need to remove invasive species because of the damage that they do and things like that, especially if you've only got an acre and yeah. you want to leave, you know, maybe a, a 10 by 10 patch to go kind of wild, just let it grow up. And I, through that act of stewardship, I encourage folks to do things like that. And once we do that, yeah, just leave it alone. Yeah. Um, do the intentional design, make it semi-wild, a zone four kind of space. And then once it's in a place, just let it, let it be. And I encourage that because it does answer that second question of some, doing something that takes care of earth and the other than human life. Because, ecolo- because research from ecology is showing more and more that those kinds of wilderness pockets can be really helpful, especially oh. for migratory populations, butterflies, birds, things like that. Interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. And with the zones, can you take, I think I know the answer to this, but does the zone have to radiate from yourself? Can you have like on one side of your house a zone one, on the other side of your house a zone five? (laughs) It's great that you bring that up because I was going to share that example from my own life. When I was on the landscape, the front yard was our zone one garden and the, the out the back door was functionally zone four for us. Okay. We just did not go there that often. It was largely used to get from the basement door to where the clothesline was. I got you. Like, and that was about it. So yeah, that's that's a perfect thing that it, and it doesn't need to be contiguous. You can have multiple zone ones and zone twos, depending on how it works. It, all of permaculture is very dynamic and the edges of what we do are fluid. And, you know, and it also goes back to what I was saying earlier about making the right decisions that we can for us is that these are only models. There are ways that we use to talk about this and considering how we might lay out the landscape or interact with our community. If you find that the best soil for growing hickory is in your front yard and that's the right place for it and it won't bother your neighbors (laughs) or disrupt the the sun coming in through your front windows that you want to keep, then plant it there. If your way from your front door to your car door would be best with some shrubs that we might normally put in zone two because that's a place where you can harvest and make use of them more regularly awesome you know and that's like with my own kids I had kind of a zone two garden that was right outside the garage that you know I could come home open my door when I got home from what I was doing grab my kids and we could go out into that green space and play yeah. And it made it more useful and accessible by having it there. I like that. I mean, it's just so, it's 
like that's I guess kind of practical permaculture in some ways of like not having the chickens so far away too and I mean we just finished mowing our yard with our cows but rotating them around the whole house but so it was zone one then it maybe became zone four for a little bit and then it went back to zone one <laughs> you know that fluid <laughs> yeah if there's any takeaway from our conversation today it is that permaculture though prescriptive is not dogmatic. I love that. Yeah. 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 And that's why I like that it really is about doing the best that you can and making the best decisions for yourself within this framework, because a lot of this can be hard. Like, as I'm sure you're aware from some of the, the personal conversations that we had when I was at your place and we were visiting together, like you and your family get to homestead functionally full-time right yeah you know while cobbling a life together around it right i practice permaculture full-time like this is what i've done more or less every day for 12 years yeah and i'm sure that it's still hard for you at times i know it's hard for me at times and so yeah just do the best we can right yeah yeah i feel like we've touched on it well enough that people can start putting it into action and that I've circled around to like what we want to put where and how we use them. And of course, if anybody has questions, ask Drew, or if you want to, I'll share my contact information before we end the interview so people can get in touch with me. Uh, and I'm more than happy to clarify any of this further. It's also though, as I say, and that's where also, if anybody has any questions, I always open the floor if people want to reach out to me and continue the conversation. The best way usually to do that is by email. If folks want to, they can contact me directly, show at permaculturepodcast.com. My phone number is also out there. If you would like to call, text, or WhatsApp me at plus one seven one seven eight two seven six two six six. But before you do that, I would recommend checking out my show to explore like the full breadth of what permaculture has to offer. I'm on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, most of the places Google, really like anywhere that you can find a podcast, I'm out there. Uh, most of those services have 300 episodes of the show available, but I've produced around 600 since 2010. So there's another like 180 some that are on my podcast website at thepermaculturepodcast.com for people who want to go there, take a look around, see what's interesting if you want to before you subscribe. And then I also work on re-releasing some of the older episodes from time to time just so that they're available through iTunes and elsewhere because there just isn't another way to get them. Uh, Yeah. So. Well, Scott, I thank you so much for your time. I'm excited about this, getting this out to everybody. And the book reading, truthfully, I've only read one of those. So I'm excited about the other three and diving into that and really thinking about the zones and the four questions. So Man, it, it's been a great conversation. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that we were able to make this time. I know that we ran over what we had originally allotted, but there's just so much of this stuff and it's amazing. And I'm thankful for the conversation, being able to share this with your listeners so that they can start implementing this in their own lives and seeing more success on their homestead. Thank you. Have a great day, everybody. <laughs>